0: I think that the approach that uh, Apple and Google have done is the right one, that uh, an approach where and I thought it was very impressive how quickly uh, they got together to produce something that would go across both their platforms and would be effectively uniform across both platforms. The idea that you effectively anonymously are told whether you've been in contact with someone who later reports themselves uh, to have been infected. Is a good idea. What you don't want is to have governments able to pull that stuff in centrally and de anonymize it, um, because that's the sort of thing that they'll never give up. You know, they'll love to have that. They'll say, "No, no, we really need it for public health, and we really got to." You know, because if there's another outbreak, well, you know, what are we going to do? So I think that Apple and Google, by forestalling the possibility of their API being used in that way, have taken a, have taken the, uh, you know, the the best path that they could. And the fact that uh, it's really difficult for a government to write an app which will function uh, without using that API, because uh, on iPhones, for example, you can't have something that's Bluetooth-related sitting at the top all the time, because it'll just kill your battery. So nobody will use it. And uh, I think the problem is similar on Android.
1: Welcome to The Disruptors, the podcast about the future of all of us, where we look at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Hear the world's top minds share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at disruptors.fm. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Charles, how do you describe yourself these days?
0: Well, I've been a journalist for <laughs> absolutely decades, so I guess that must be what I am. I'm writing a book about side effects of social networks on society. I'm a moderator. Back in the days when we used to all get together in the same place and talk about stuff. So uh, that's, that's really what I do. I try to, I've always tried to give an idea of the sort of impact that technology is having on society. That's really been what I've tried to do through my journalism as much as I could.
1: Sounds like your book is right on point. How social media is affecting us in politics. Oh, what's that? Yeah, what's that, your what's your, yeah. what's your thesis?
0: Uh, it's that social networks uh, have brought benefits. You know, you can contact people who are far away, people you might have fallen out of touch with. But at the same time, the way that they're designed and the way that we're designed means that things which outrage us travel faster. That that has an effect, which is to make people just a little more angry, a little more prone to be annoyed a little more ready to jump off the handle at things and that it's uh, you know this a, there's a drawback to that rather like the you know you could say that cars are a great invention because they let you get to the supermarket but equally they contribute to global warming and that's not a great thing so so it's one of these sort of you know it's nice in the short term not so good in the long term sort of effects
1: and when there is that even just small percentage change in something, for instance, counting cards in blackjack only gives you a couple percentage increase, but you're going to kill the house if you keep playing. I think social media has found a way to kill the house with just a couple percent change in how people behave.
0: It's quite an interesting effect. I mean, you know, one of the chapters that I've researched has been looking at uh, Myanmar where basically Facebook had zero moderation, um, not through intent, but more through sort of, uh, accident for a number of years. And they went from having zero internet to having a lot of internet all of which was Facebook and that did not do anything good for uh, ethnic relations there and it effectively let the government uh, commit a genocide which the citizens were not upset about they were it, it was sort of inflammatory in effect the way that Facebook um, you know, the, the sharing on Facebook had that effect on people there so yeah it's it's a sort of a it's a negative thing at times.
1: You brought up the moderation, but is moderation the problem or is the network the problem? I feel like moderation is almost impossible just given the scale.
0: Yeah, given the scale, moderation is impossible. It's much more to do with our behavior on these networks and the question of how algorithms feed us things, feed us things that people are reacting to, and our own instincts, which are about outrage. It is very much, if you see something outrageous, your your reaction tends to be to share it because you say hey look at this outrageous thing i i think this is a bad thing don't you think that as well and uh, before you know it it's all you know gone crazy and you have a sort of old Catherine wheel of things um, where where people are all being outraged and try to up the ante and how outraged they are and uh, pretty soon everyone's totally worked up over something that was you know perhaps quite innocent in its way or didn't actually deserve that amount of outrage yeah you know, sometimes the outrage is justified like uh, presently you're seeing you know, in, in america and uh, other countries with the uh, of the killing of george floyd sometimes though it's uh, it's less so sometimes you know the issue is much more nuanced but the only response that effectively we have through social networks is a is to be outraged and yeah it's pretty difficult for moderation to uh, to keep up with that and uh, it's very difficult really to to find a way through except to say that that you know you need you need networks which are designed perhaps sometimes to tamp down that moderation and you know so for example facebook has done a lot of work in the past few years trying to stop fake news uh, from spreading through facebook uh it tamps it down it has fact checkers against it so there are things that can be done but yeah to, to some extent the um, you know as i say the fault lies in us rather than uh, than anywhere else well it's
1: a perfect storm you have us which are incentivized towards outrage over awesomeness you have the pay-per-click and paper attention type business models And then you have an algorithm designed to show you what you want. It's kind of a perfect storm. Too many people. How do we we deal with that, though, going forward? Because it's not going to get better unless you fix one of those things. So we can either wipe out humanity. We can breed Mm -hmm. it out of us with genetics. We can ban. I mean, is is banning attention-based advertising the only way?
0: I don't think, actually, that the problem's in the advertising. The problem is much more in the, the design of the networks. And, you know, as much as anything, being aware of it has a big effect. So, for myself, you know, as I've been researching and writing, you know reading all the scientific papers about how outrage spreads, how it becomes viral on social networks that actually has made me think a lot more before I share stuff, and I'm sort of asking myself well why am i why am I about to do this is it Is this just me sort of reacting in an outraged way, or actually is there some benefit that I can bring to it? Is there Am I adding to the network? And actually, you know, dozens of times a day, at least, when I'm, you know, looking on on Twitter, because I that's that's the network that I use most of the time. I, I hardly use Facebook ever. You know, I do find myself holding back and saying, No, actually, I'm. Um, there's nothing I can say to this which is actually going to add in a positive way. All I'd be doing is just amping up the outrage, and that's not a thing to do yeah in some ways, it's a bit like you know the days back when people thought smoking was a great idea you know uh, it took a little bit of education to realize that that wasn't the case uh, despite all the the adverts that might be trying to persuade you otherwise and that actually what you needed to do was to to change your behavior
1: but to do that is changing the structure of the networks possible when the networks are incentivized to be structured as I feel like they're they're almost perfectly built for the way they're incentivized currently.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely, and and that's very much the case. Yeah, they they're sort of uh, evolving, uh, have evolved uh, over the past sort of decade or so towards a situation where yeah, they they have this stuff down pat and uh, it suits them very well. Uh, Facebook gets bigger and bigger, um, and though you do see some efforts by some of the networks, so Instagram, uh, which is Facebook owned, of course trying to reduce the uh, the visibility of things like likes so that you don't see how many likes uh, someone else's photograph has got. That's an interesting way of reducing this. And I spoke to a guy called Ben Grosser who has uh, developed some web extensions which will remove all the numbers from Facebook. So, you know, normally you go on Facebook and it says, oh, you have you know, five new friend requests. Um, This was written, uh, you know, 10 minutes ago. Uh, You have 15 people who have said things about you. His uh, web extension called uh, the Facebook Demetricator takes all those numbers away. You just see people have said something about you. This was written quite recently. And it has a sort of a calming effect on the way that you view a page that otherwise is just festooned with numbers. And uh, I think that that's the sort of thing, again, uh, having a calming effect having effects on the way that you think about what you're doing. You know, if you start studying these networks, if you just sort of step back for them a little bit and look at what a Twitter page, Twitter web page does to you, it's sort of saying, hey, these people liked your tweet. These people like to retweet of yours. And I don't use the Twitter web app much of the time. I use a third party app called Tweetbot, which doesn't show me those sorts of numbers. So when I go onto Twitter, the web app, I'm amazed a lot of the time. I go, why, why is it throwing all these things at me? And obviously the way, the reason why it's because it's trying to incentivize me to do more. And as you know, Ben Grosser points out, why Why is it that we have to do more? Why can't we just do the right amount, the amount that feels right to us? And I think that's a big question for a lot of these networks is, you know, why do you want us to do so much more? Why do you want us to spend all this time just sort of clicking things and, and passing things on? Is that actually benefiting us as people or Isn't is that it just the benefiting McDonald's you? Isn't that the McDonald's problem
1: though? So then you've got to get people to opt into doing less for their own sake. Mm-hmm. With uh, people that are evolved, you have to get people to go, enough people to go against what they're incentivized to want to feel. Do you have to force it on them? Because, I mean, fast food's a thing, overconsumption of alcohol, overconsumption of entertainment, all of these things are a thing, and they're a thing we're involved to do.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, so the McDonald's salad problem, which is, yeah, how do you get people to eat salads rather than saying, I'll have the chips? Yeah, that's that's definitely a problem. And as you say, you know, our the the evolution that we have sort of makes us more liable to say, yeah, I'll have the thing with fat in because my body just likes to get fat just in case we have a, a huge pandemic and there's no food anywhere and I never get to eat for, for days and days. Sure, that that is a problem. It's all about awareness, you know, which is realizing actually you live in a world where there's plenty of food. You're not actually gonna starve, and you can just, you know, resist it a bit. Getting the message across is difficult, but uh, it can be done, I think, and you know, little things like uh, Instagram removing the the number of likes on a photo. Yeah, it sounds pretty small, but actually, it has an effect.
1: Which of the tech companies scares you the most today, and why? Scares me the most.
0: Uh, that's an interesting question. I mean, so to be scary, I suppose it has to have power that it sh- that it could use irresponsibly, power which it, which can't be uh, removed from it. I mean, actually, I I do think Facebook possibly is the one there because there's no way to replace Mark Zuckerberg. He has all the voting shares. He has a majority of the voting shares, that is. And the power that it has in terms of what it could decide to do or to not do, how it can tweak the algorithm, uh, showing you things in the news feed, what it can decide to allow or not allow in terms of political advertising, uh, normal advertising, all that sort of stuff is enormous power and um, is... You know potentially enormously dangerous and we you know we did see some effects from it in in 2016 in uh, in the UK in the uh, the, the brexit referendum where um, the leave side uh, was much more effective in its use of Facebook. It was able to motivate people to come out and vote who possibly never would have voted before in the and similarly you know for the Trump campaign uh, and also you know Russia trying to um, get at people and to suppress the vote in some parts. Uh, just to, to amp people up in the other parts, you know, that's that's all the sort of um, an effect which which you'd have to say if you're really wondering about the risks posed by a company, you'd have to look at that and go, I'm not so sure that's a good thing. It's it's really not positive generally, and uh, you know all the things about connecting people around the world. Well, sure, yeah, but yeah, there's a big but on that, and I find Mark Zuckerberg's almost indifference to the risks of what he has there to be surely the most worried thing and most worrying thing around you know uh, companies like apple apple's a big company but they don't have a monopoly in anything you know they don't have monopoly in phones or anywhere google is a big company but they don't shape things in the way that i think we used to think they would shape things so, yeah, I, I think it's uh, it's Facebook which is the most concerning.
1: What would mandating 100% voter turnout do? That would illuminate much of the issue because a big, I feel like most of, at least what I've heard about the elections and the issues we've seen surrounding them hasn't necessarily been changing people's minds. It's been getting people not to vote.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I mean, Australia has, um, you know, makes it mandatory to vote. So uh, you could look at the examples from Australia uh, where you can still get... Uh, perverse outcomes. But, I mean, the problem in America is not so much about uh, you know, Facebook suppressing the vote. I mean, I'd, I'd have to say, I think the problem in the US is much more about suppression of the vote, actually, you know, places where people want to vote. Uh, it's the, the problems with mailing in ballots. Uh, it's a problem with uh, having sufficient numbers of voting stations. That are open for long enough to allow people to vote. Uh, I mean, yeah, so there are suggestions around that um, election days should be public holidays, and that sounds to me like a really good idea. So yeah, I mean, mandate voting if uh, if you think it'll work. Um, but yeah, you really have to have people who are who are you know, motivated to vote, and I think that's that's the sort of thing that shows it. It's not used in many countries that I can think of, uh, mandatory voting. But um, I'm not sure that even in the countries where it is, you know, made part of the law that you have to turn up and vote. That it that it makes a gigantic difference to to outcomes.
1: It's hard to see how it would be bad, though. When you have something oh, sure. that has only upside, it's almost always just worth it.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, you've got to say that it would uh, it would certainly focus people's minds, and it would make people think a lot harder about the inequities and the uh, the difficulties that people face when they want to vote in places like uh, like Georgia, as uh, as we saw recently.
1: Yeah, God, Georgia, Georgia. That's I'm in Atlanta right now, and it's it's interesting to feel like you're in one of the most backward states, but I suppose somebody has to be. (laughs) So, so I want to, I want to transition a little bit. Uh, A big part of your work has been privacy, cybersecurity, and overall surveillance. Take me into, take me into what you've worked on the past 10 years, how you've seen the landscape change and where we're at today when it comes to privacy and surveillance.
0: Well, so, you know, rewind 10 years, you're back to 2010 and, that's the sort of time when WikiLeaks was starting to uh, do a lot of a uh, lot of stuff. So I was working at the Guardian newspaper then, and uh, you had things like uh, WikiLeaks uh, releasing, I think, the Afghanistan war logs, the things like um, the film footage uh showing a us army helicopter firing on people in uh, in afghanistan including a i think a Reuters reporter so that then followed on to wikileaks releasing the uh, us cables american diplomatic cables a huge tranche of those and following on from that you had uh, anonymous uh the sort of hacking collective i guess you'd call them uh, getting involved with attacks on Amazon and Visa because they had blocked WikiLeaks from being able to receive funds. So I got uh, really interested. I mean, I've, I've been interested in the whole hacking space, the whole question of uh, security around that for, for a very long time. I mean, I, I was talking to hackers back in, wow, back in the 90s or so. So that's just something I've been doing a long, for a long time because it was always a natural part of technology, you know, rather like, you know, the, the natural thing that happens out of, uh, you know, you invent the ship, so at the same time you invent the shipwreck, well, uh, you know, you invent the computer pretty much uh, at the same time you invent the hacker. So, yeah, I've, I've, uh, I sort of followed Anonymous and I got interested in the, the whole hacking space again with that. I looked at what uh, the sort of offshoot from an almost called Lulsec did. I was sort of trying to chase them around the web for a long time. Uh, they got caught. They got put in jail. and uh, But subsequently, I've sort of met uh, two of the guys who were in it, the guys who were in Britain, and uh, electronically, one of the people who was the sort of the, the leader of the group, though. I don't know if the other guys would agree. So yeah, that's that's been a big part. And on the privacy question, of course, there was also in uh, 2013 there was uh, all the Snowden leaks. And uh, I was uh, sort of tangentially involved in The Guardian, uh, looking at some of what came out of that. Again, that's a really big topic in terms of surveillance and privacy, uh, in terms of what the US government has been doing with its own citizens, and what's been trying to enable around the world. So that's, that's, yeah, that's been a really big, uh, really big subject. I mean, I think that it's, the question of privacy is one that People are now very aware in terms of what governments do, but they're less aware maybe in terms of what companies do. I mean, the way, the extent to which Facebook, for example, and Google uh, both track you around the web and Google, are, you know, physically wherever you are, and Facebook's to a slightly lesser extent as well. I think people are very unaware of that. And, and actually, that's possibly the next big space that uh, people will start to think about having having con, you know, considered government surveillance and uh, another surveillance
1: I mean all you really have to do is pair one data set with the other data set and you have everything Facebook well, and the government yeah. work together Google and the government work together that's uh, that's 1984.
0: Uh, yeah though I though I think that uh, Google would uh, and Facebook would both fight against that very hard but mean um, it's it's been really interesting you, know, you don't actually have to go to Facebook and, and Google you know, it's been really interesting uh, during uh, the course of the pandemic watching uh, the New York Times in particular do uh, a lot of analysis with data sets which they've uh, managed to collect you know they've they've worked with third-party companies which have apps on people's uh, smartphones and those apps are collecting location data. Uh, People might think that uh, their phones aren't you know telling third parties you know that they're they're not telling people who aren't Facebook aren't Google where they are but actually they are and so um, the New York Times was able to produce a couple of Big exposés about where people who had been in Florida for their um, for their spring break had gone after they returned home from their spring break, and it was all over the country. Yeah, but but you're mapping this down almost to the level of individual phones, and certainly the third party companies, the advertising companies, the ad tech companies, do have that data in that specificity, so they can track you to your door. You know they know everything about you, and um, again, that's really not widely known, I don't think, and uh, people. I think in the U.S. are very accepting of it in a way that doesn't happen over here in the U- in the U.K. doesn't happen in Europe because we have what's called the GDPR. It's a data protection regulation that essentially says that companies really have to get a lot of your permission and your very explicit permission before they can track you in that sort of way.
1: Do you think it doesn't happen, or do you think it doesn't happen above the above the table, so to speak?
0: Hmm, that's a difficult question. I so,
1: so like for instance the the U.S. when they were at war with before it was the U.S. When we were breaking off from Britain, we had essentially private merchanteers, i.e. Uh, pirates. You can be a pirate and it's totally cool and you can go all over and you get to get out of jail free card as long as you're not attacking us or as long as we split a little bit of the booty. And I, I would be shocked if governments don't do that.
0: It's quite possible. I mean, you know, governments tend to have much more straightforward ways of getting that data, you know, if they actually want to have it. Then they can, they can do it. And, and they possibly don't want it in large volumes. They want to target small numbers of people. But yeah, I'd, I'd imagine that there are methods for them simply to say to Google, to say to Facebook, yeah, we're, we're tracking this person. You're going to give us their data. You know, that's, that's a sort of court order thing. That's a, that's a uh, Pfizer style thing that uh, I'm sure happens a lot uh, with particular individuals, whether they do it for gigantic groups of individuals, whether they have lines into the ad tech companies um they might do i mean it uh it would sort of simplify a lot of things for them i guess and they they would then have a gigantic data store that they could look at any time so yeah probably someone in the nsa has probably thought that that's a good idea and um yeah maybe they'd even just set up a an ad tech company as a front that would uh, that would collect all this stuff totally on the you know totally legitimately for some app or other and actually it's all going all get into the nsa and they're all just keeping it nice and safe for themselves
1: yeah there's plenty of there's plenty of conspiracy theories out there i imagine you got to be able to pick at least 10 percent and say some of these are right plenty of other things haven't been brought up and a good majority of these are wrong but it's it's just interesting especially with data because it's something where it's a slippery slope of power every president since forever has taken a little bit more power but none of them give any back
0: oh sure sure sure
1: Today's episode is brought to you guys by ProtonVPN, the safest way to stream your favorite movies or secure your traffic, while on public Wi-Fi, at home, or on the go. Finding the right VPN is daunting. What should you look for? Trust. ProtonVPN offers a private, trusted solution. They're based in Switzerland, the home of neutrality and secrecy, and home to some of the world's strongest privacy laws. It's open source, independently audited, and has a robust privacy policy. Plus, Proton's funded by their community of users, there's no revenue from ad sales. They live by the philosophy. People over profits. They're not selling you and your data, unlike Google, Facebook, and many other VPNs. And not only are they transparent and secure, it's also fast and reliable and stable. You can connect virtually to over 50 countries. Now here's your call to action. If you go to ProtonVPN.com disruptors, that's D-I-S. R-U-P-T-O-R-S, you get 34% off their two-year plan. Plus, there's a 30-day money-back guarantee. If you want to secure your traffic, secure your business, secure your life, ProtonVPN. ProtonVPN.com slash disruptors for 34% off their two-year plan. Check them out. Thanks, Proton. And now let's get
0: on with the episode.
1: What do you think about contact tracing, location, privacy? with COVID, what's happening now and what that looks like going forward?
0: I think that the approach that uh, Apple and Google have done is the right one. That uh, an approach where, and and I thought it was very impressive how quickly uh, they got together to produce something that would go across both their platforms and would be effectively uniform across both platforms. The idea that you effectively anonymously are told whether you've been in contact with someone who later reports themselves uh, to have been infected is a good idea. What you don't want is to have governments able to pull that stuff in centrally and de-anonymise it, um, because that's the sort of thing that they'll never give up. You know, they'll love to have that. i will say, "No, no, we really need it for public health, and we've really got to." You know, because if there's another outbreak, well, you know, what are we going to do? So, I think that Apple and Google, by forestalling the possibility of their API being used in that way have, have taken a, have taken the, uh, you know, the, the best path that they could. And the fact that uh, it's really difficult for a government to write an app which will function uh, without using that API because uh, on iPhones, for example, you can't have something that's Bluetooth-related uh, sitting at the top all the time because it'll just kill your battery, so nobody will use it. And uh, I think the problem is similar on Android. So over here in the UK, for example, uh, the government wrote a contact tracing app uh, which it's been ty- trying out in a tiny island just in the south of the uk called the isle of Wight, which has got um you know a few thousand few tens of thousands of people and it's not been going very well and uh, there are lots of questions over why the government has done it especially because they wrote it before the api was available which means that it's uh it's an app which effectively just can't can't really do what you want to do uh, in with, with sufficient privacy and a lot of people wouldn't give that information to the government because they just don't trust the government with it the uk government has done a very poor job in terms of handling the uh, coronavirus pandemic so uh, a lot of people are, are reluctant to to hand it over i think that actually people would be more willing to give their acceptance to something if they knew that it had the uh, apple and google imprimatur behind it but um in general people are much more willing to go with something from companies they trust and you know generally they trust the makers of their smartphones so yeah i i think that the risk is the governments try to gather all that data it was interesting that germany for example which has very strong data laws tried for a while to go on its own try to do its own sort of centralizing app which if you uh were in contact with someone then they would know that it was you and uh, the person who had been who'd been near would also be known to the government uh, and they rejected that in the end they said no we're going to go with the apple and google one because you know it's it's just a much more uh, it's a better way for a government to behave and uh, generally you want governments to behave like that
1: it is but at the same time how much trauma do you need before citizens are excited about a social credit system.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean it, it becomes it starts to become a race between people's desire to get back to quote normal which possibly we won't ever get. Uh, people's desire to have a vaccine, people's desire to you know just get it over and done with. Even you know some people just just think, okay, what the hell? I'll I'll get it, and it probably won't be too bad, and you know then I'll get on with my life. So I think there's a there's a lot of confused thinking out there, and um, yeah, if you were to use your <laughs> your coronavirus contact score or something as a as a credit score, then uh, that gets that gets tricky. But but I just think that that uh, I mean a social credit system. For example, in the way that China uses it, where it's, it's something—it's like that Black Mirror episode, isn't it—the uh, the downfall one, where you know your interactions with people are all judged and scored, and you get more likes, and you have to have a certain number before you can you know get onto a, get into first class or whatever. I I, I think that um, yeah, possibly in an authoritarian country like China, you can just about make it stick, but I think that once you get outside that, it becomes very difficult to to make it work. I think that people just resist; that they'll they'll find ways around it i will find ways to to hack the system
1: do you fear that there is a a point of no return when it comes to systems like that for instance we've never had a we've never had a tyrannical government persist in perpetuity we've had stalin we've had the stasi we've had all of these different systems but is there a is there a theory to say they just didn't have enough of a amplification of force data and power could there be a slippery slope you can't get back from?
0: Hmm. That's a that's a big question. I mean, I, I think you you need a politics professor on that one. But I mean my my own take on that would be that that tyrannical systems tend to fail because They have such big internal contradictions that without external help, they will always fail. So, you know, Stalin, you know, millions died under Stalin because they had uh, systems for agriculture which simply did not work. Uh, North Korea is, you know, a a failing country which is only kept going by supplies of wheat and other food from China and uh, possibly from Russia. Uh, you know, which is, which is basically humanitarian. The, the the contradiction of trying to control what people do and think just can't hold up against the, the fact that either your, your population shrinks, in which case you, you have the problem of how do you keep feeding everyone, or else your population grows, in which case you have the same problem. How do you keep feeding everyone? Uh, within, within a fixed system, it it just can't sustain itself. You know, you you see the same sort of thing happening in Cuba. You know, these, these systems, are not sustainable and that's not necessarily to say that um a, a completely free market system you know an un- unregulated one uh is sustainable either i mean you know you see the effects with the you know, global global heating uh of, of a system which doesn't actually take account of the externalities of burning fossil fuels so you know all these all these systems have have their failings it's just a question of which one fails sooner uh and what we tend to see is that the authoritarian ones the tyrannical ones the the, uh, the failing comes to the surface a lot more quickly.
1: Okay. You were a big part of the UK's Free Our Data movement. What was that and why did you say it's so important?
0: Okay, that uh, so Free Our free Data was something which I started when I began at The Guardian in 2005. So before that, I'd been working at uh, another British newspaper, a daily newspaper called The Independent. And there I got interested in a lawsuit between the Ordnance Survey, which is the UK's mapping agency, which is part of the government, which does all the mapping uh, down to one metre and below detail. You know, it's got everything. It does all the maps for the whole of the UK in fabulous detail and is uh, very long-standing. It's been going for centuries. It was originally set up in order to create maps. So the military could have them, so they'd know, you know who to fire their cannons at. There was a lawsuit between the Ordnance Survey and uh, another company which wanted to build maps uh, over copyright. And I looked at it, and I and my first reaction to this lawsuit was that it was really peculiar because you know the government is funded by the citizens. You know where does the government's money come? It comes from us, the, the UK. And yet the Ordnance Survey was claiming copyright. And that this copyright meant that we, the citizens, couldn't actually have access to these maps that we had, in effect, paid for. Uh, the situation that's that's because at that time the situation in the U in the UK was different from the one that pertains in the US, where everything that's produced by the government in the US is uh, because it's funded by the citizens is available for free to the citizens. So you know that's why NASA's photographs, uh, that's why you know US Congress testimony, all these sorts of things is all uh, available for free to US citizens and actually to everyone, uh, which I think is a great model. And I thought that uh, a similar model should apply to mapping data because it's so important. It's so useful. In a digital world, knowing where you are becomes so important. So when I joined The uh, the Guardian in 2005 to edit its technology section, which was uh, an eight-page uh, pull-out section every Thursday, uh, so a weekly section, one of my thinking, you know, part of my thinking was that, in order to, to have an impact, you know, what, what the hell is the point of, uh, you know, running a newspaper section if you don't actually have an impact? And what I thought would have an impact was to run a campaign. When I'd been at the Independent, uh, we'd had a uh, campaigning editor, a woman called Rosie Boycott, who had uh, run a number of campaigns. One of them was about uh, removing what are called bull bars, uh, sort of the chrome metal bars from uh, getting those off the front of uh, big uh, 4x4 SUV sort of vehicles because the evidence showed that um, when children were hit by them that they tended to be killed. You know, even at low velocities, you know, low impact, low speed sort of uh, impact, it would kill them. And I sort of watched this campaign unfold and it was effective. What they did was week after week, they would write stories about you know, the, the effects of this, the human impact, how simple it would be to change it, and they got the law changed. And that, I thought, was a really beneficial thing to do with journalism. You use the the platform that you have to identify something that's wrong, and you use your ability to go after the story, to show the people who actually need to pay attention to it uh, what they need to do. It's uh, it's journalism as a public service. So at The Guardian, my thinking was I needed to do a campaign, and I thought that uh, making uh, non-personal data that the government held available to british citizens and you know anyone else who could find a use for it was uh, similarly a good thing to do and my reasoning for this was that although the government might not get uh, the revenues that it previously got from selling this data so from you know selling the digital map data which it used to do the Ordnance survey used to actually charge people if they wanted to use an extract from an Ordnance survey map on a uh, on a web page I, my reasoning was if you allow people to do this, A, they'll start using the Ordnance Survey uh, maps uh, on their web pages, which is, you know, good branding, but more to the point, it actually helps the digital economy, which is where everything is moving. You know, you want to, you know, skate to where the puck is going to be. You want to actually be there and uh, help people who are going to be in the UK, because that's what the maps are about uh, to do things and, you know, point to it. So it seemed to me like a, a very obvious benefit. Uh, to do this, so I, uh, with a guy called Michael Cross, uh, who was a journalist who was uh, contributing to the section, we came up with the idea for uh, this campaign, which was going to be called Free Our Data, make non-personal government data free uh, at the at the point of demand. And um, you know, the idea was to, to lobby government and to run stories about this campaign for it. We first started with a big feature in March two thousand and six. And then we just plugged away at it for four years. And um, it initially, we had a lot of uh, pushback, especially from Ordnance Survey, because they're a big organization. And uh, they were very happy with the way that they've been funded for years and years. And they saw us as uh, essentially a threat. So um, I had multiple calls from them. Uh, they made multiple calls to my editor, who um, you know, called me into his office one day and said, is this really something that you need to be doing? You know, is are you annoying them just for the sake of annoying them or is there actually more to this? And, you know, I explained the whole purpose of what we were trying to do, that I thought that having this data, this, this digital information available as the internet was growing so fast was actually going to be a big benefit. And um, he said, oh, okay, okay, well, keep going with it. And it was basically, you know, that he would sort of watch me and um, he said, just, just don't get us into any big trouble, okay? So I plugged away at it and for a couple of years it was just all uphill work. Uh, it was sort of trying to make the point about things like things like tide tables. So, you know, that's when is, when is the tide going to be high? When is the tide going to be low at a, at a particular point uh, around the coast? Which doesn't sound like much, but actually the tide tables are really important. If you're a sailor, Uh, or actually if you're a rock climber, which I, you know, I have to like rock climbing. And I've been, you know, the the UK has lots of really great sea cliffs, but it's pretty important if you're going to go climb on the sea cliff to know when the tide is going to be high and when the tide is going to be low. Because if you get that wrong, then you're going to be pretty wet uh, at best and you might drown at worst. So, uh, you know, making things like the tide tables available, that was a bunch called the UK Hydrographic Office, Uh, company data from Companies House, um, oh, there, were, there were all sorts. Uh, the UK Meteorological Office, uh, which does all the weather forecasts. You know, there was a whole load of uh, these things that were called trading agencies, which basically uh, were, you know, owned by the government, but which were charging the citizens you know, for for data, which I figured actually could be could be made available. It was like I say, it was a, it was a real uphill struggle for a couple of years, and then there was a, a sort of a change of um, not a government exactly, but uh, the prime minister changed so it had been tony blair and then tony uh, george uh, gordon brown took over in i think 2008 or so and uh, he brought in a whole cadre of new ministers and one of them was a guy called tom watson who was put in charge of what's called the the cabinet office which is sort of it's a bit like being chief of staff i guess to the president it's sort of you know the, the people who make everything make the wheels go round they make everything actually happen uh, and tom uh, was a big uh fan of the technology section you know he he liked video games. That was sort of where he came into it. Uh, but he was just interested in this. And this was one uh, thing to me that was a big strength of having a print section. You know, the thing about a newspaper is you can put it down on someone's desk and say, look at what they've written about us now. You know, you can actually get you know, ministers to, to pay attention to it in a way that you can't with a web page. I think that there's a big difference in terms of the impact that you have if something is in print, which is scarce, which is valuable. Where you have to weigh up whether you're gonna put something here or put something there, compared to a web page where you know one page looks much like another, and it's difficult to know whether this is the top story from the front of the site or whether there's just some you know little link that's buried off in the side so I want to jump was, into I want to
1: jump into hmm. that for a sec, so yeah. you you brought up at the very beginning of this the you kind of had I'm a journalist, I should do something that matters kind Mm -hmm. of thing. I should have a campaign to change something that I believe in. Do you think that that's the direction journalism should go? Because I'd play devil's advocate and say Rupert Murdoch.
0: How is Rupert Murdoch a devil's advocate side?
1: Well, I mean, Fox News does the same thing in terms of advocating for what it believes in. It just pushes a very different agenda.
0: Oh, okay. Um, Well, I would say that, that a cause of journalism should be to push for things which are for the public good. And you can measure the public good by, you know, what's, what's by outcomes. You can say, well, you know, are more people lifted out of poverty or are people who are being wronged uh actually having their, their lives improved? Is justice being done by this? So to, you know, if you say Fox News to me, then I say, point me to the things where Fox News has, you know, righted wrongs or lessened injustice. And if they haven't done that, then that ain't journalism in my book. You know, that's just sort of entertainment. That's just sort of performing for the camera. You know, there, there's, you know, there are lots of ways to do journalism, but, but to me, you know, the, the highest version is the version which does lead to better outcomes for people who read it, people who don't read it.
1: But there's no set way to measure that. I can take two of you that are exactly the same and one of you has one belief and one of you has another and you're very sure of it and you have very good facts to support it. And it's completely different in the approach.
0: Well, you can have measurable, like I say, that there are also, there more objective measurable outcomes. You can say, well, okay, how many businesses have been able to use this data? You know, on the free of data question, how many businesses are able to use data which weren't able to use it before? Thereby contributing to the GDP, contributing to tax revenues, putting people into employment or keeping people out of employment, unemployment sorry, you know, with, with other things. For example, the the Guardian newspaper over here uh, last, know, two years ago now, uh, ran a big campaign about uh, people who had immigrated here from Caribbean countries and were now, due to government policy, uh, being questioned as to their right to remain, even though they had you know they were effectively citizens they'd been invited to come over here you know decades ago this is called the Windrush scandal and the journalist who who went at this and who looked into it has you know Affected restorative justice for, for, you know, scores of people, hundreds of people, perhaps thousands. I I'd think you'd have to say there's a way to objectively measure that as a benefit, uh, you know, set me in. But with- are
1: people objectively measuring when they decide to write these stories? That's what I would say. And I would say, no, I'd say people are going based off of what they believe to be true. And most people act in a way and believe things that they think will make it right. So now we could take the same journalist and he can run the stories on the people that got displaced by these new immigrants coming in and all of the harms caused by them. And he wouldn't be wrong in his assessment. He might not be right in terms of a if we're looking on an averaged, this is overall what's better for the entirety. But people don't look for that when they write stories. They look for they write what they believe, and they believe they believe what is right.
0: That's uh, yeah, sure. That's that's true. And then in that sort of situation, you then have to have to weigh it up. I mean, it's uh, it's the sort of thing where nowadays you know, a lot that that can be questioned a lot more carefully. You know, data can be brought to it a lot more effectively to say, well, actually, is this is this uh, displacement you're describing? Is that actually something that happens? Or is it simply that there's, you know, there's an expanding population, there's actually more work for people, and that the, you know, the work is available, you know, these things can be queried a lot more effectively. And indeed, you know, that when I was uh, quite early on in in the free our data campaign, a guy who, you know, had the ear of people in the treasury, and so might have been able to uh, have an effect on whether it was listened to or not, said to me, okay, so give me an example, you know, where this is, where this has been done, uh, you know, where data is made free and that Brings an economic benefit, and at the time I was completely stuck. I could not think of an example, but not long after I realised what it is, and it's GPS, Global Positioning System, which is uh, run by the US government. Uh, costs, I think, cost, yeah, costs a fair amount. It's, uh, it's not cheap to run, but it means that uh, people have satellite navigation all over the world, and that creates a benefit in terms of all the companies which are uh, yeah, running satnav systems for cars people not getting lost, people not being late, uh, you know, you have huge economic benefits from that. So, you know, that became my example. Those are the sorts of ways I think that you have to, you know, if you're going to question whether journalism that aims to get results has benefits, then I, I think that's the way to do it. You've got you to say, okay, well, you know, what what are our metrics here? What are, we, what are the ways that we uh, decide whether something has a benefit? You know, it's not just sort of, does X get elected? Because that's, that's pretty shallow, you know. If that's all your objective is, then actually you're not in journalism. You're just, you know, you're just a, a politician or you're a pollster or you know something like that. Uh, it's actually about wider benefits to to you know, big groups of people.
1: I don't agree with. I don't disagree with any of. <laughs> it. I don't disagree with any of it. I just think once the ability to have a slant comes in, people look for the stories, and it becomes much harder to be objective when you're allowed to be subject. If that makes sense.
0: There's no such thing as objective.
1: It's hard to try to be objective when you're allowed to be subjective.
0: No, but but that's even that. I, you know, this, this is. I mean, this is again. Is a this becomes a deep question in journalism. But uh, there's no such thing as objectivity. There is impartiality. Yeah, you know, there is sort of you know letting sides be heard. But uh, everyone is subjective. You know, everyone comes at it from their own place from with their own experiences, with their own choice of what to look at and what not to look at. You know, there's. There's opportunity cost everywhere in journalism, which is, you know, should I go down this street or should I go down that street? Do I talk to this person or do I talk to that person? You know, do you talk to the homeless person or do you talk to the, the well-dressed person? You know, that's a choice that you make. It's It's got to be subjective because, you know, there's no objectivity to it. You might have uh, a sort of a, an aim of, okay, well, today I'm going to go and talk to homeless people, in which case I'm not going to talk to the person, the well-dressed person, but actually maybe they're part of the story. That, you know, there's no... Objectivity is a is a is a fiction which we'd like to we like to pretend exists, and I think a lot of American newspapers like to pretend exists, but it doesn't. It's impartiality is the thing that does exist, uh, but everything is subjective.
1: I think that's a perfect place to start to wrap this up, and that's probably going to be the title I try to use for this. Objectivity is a fictitious thing we like to pretend exists. Charles, I think that wraps up social media. I think that wraps up the media. I think that wraps up a lot of what we've been talking about. Where, if people want to find you and learn more about you and what you do, is the best place.
0: Uh, probably Twitter, where I'm. Uh, I'm at Charles Arthur.
1: At Charles Arthur, and don't worry about the retweets and stuff, guys. He's not looking at them. He's trying to stay out of the the, <laughs> the cesspool fight, the fight pit.
0: Well, do you know? I mean, it's it's quite weird because you know, I'm so I'm writing this book, which means I have to really focus on it. And what I find myself doing is I, you know, I spend a few hours writing and then I, uh, I sort of go off to the kitchen or whatever to have a cup of coffee or something or, or some lunch and I, uh, and, you know, I open up social media and I realize I'm sort of doing it like someone having a cigarette, that it's got that sort of addictive quality, which uh, where you're sort of looking forward to the next one. It's, it's quite weird to sort of observe myself doing that
1: want to see even more check how often you check your phone and then when you reach into your pocket and realize wait what am i i know there's nothing there and you slide it back in once you kind of start to have those thoughts you you realize yeah we might be more than a little hooked and a little bit more than we thought we were
0: although i have to say i find the cure for that is having a having a smart you know i got an apple watch and oh that god that sounds like
1: awful that sounds so much worse no no then, it's when they're always there
0: you're not concerned about your phone. you know, having some message or other. You, know, if it's a thing you want to know, then you can get it to come up on your, on your f- watch. Otherwise, you can ignore it.
1: That sounds like the that sounds like the, the 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 junkie saying, "I've got the I've got the extra pill in my pocket just in case, so I don't have to worry about finding finding my source." I don't know about that one. I would say turning <laughs> off notifications might be a safer a safer bet. But to each their own, I guess. <laughs> Charles, thanks world. for coming on. Anything you want to leave people with? Sorry, a quote, a call to action, anything? Uh,
0: Not really. Um, I mean, uh, just as a coda on the the free our data thing, you know, uh, this minister, Tom Watson, got interested and uh, things all all got bigger and better. We got Tim Berners-Lee involved. We got Gordon Brown involved. And, you know, after, by 2010, uh, when they called an election, actually everything went ahead. And by that time, both of the main political parties have both made it part of their uh, ambition, uh, which was quickly realized to to make this data free. So you know that for me was a big result. But yeah, in terms of uh, calls to action, you know have a campaign, have have something that you want to do to change the world.
1: I like it. Find your thing, be the change, make it happen. That's the only way we really change things. Whether it's for the worse or the better, it's better than doing nothing. Thanks for coming on today, Charles. Thanks so much, Matt. And thanks for tuning in, guys. We'll see you again soon. Cheers be the change you want to see in the world. That's something I strive towards and fail towards every single day. If you enjoyed this podcast, if you think the world could benefit from conversations like this, the greatest compliment you can give us is referring to the disruptors to a friend or talking about us on social media. Please take 30 seconds to do so. It would mean the world to us. And if we're lucky, help us build towards a better world. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for helping us spread the message and have a great day.